This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung peoples. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. And welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. Joko Widodo's recent trip to four African countries marked the first ever by an Indonesian head of state. The president's five-day visit took him to Kenya, Tanzania and Mozambique before finishing in South Africa where he attended the meeting of the BRICS group of nations in Johannesburg. In his address to the BRICS conference, Jokowi evoked the spirit of Bandung in reference to the Asia-Africa conference held in the West Java capital in 1955. And he called for solidarity and cooperation between the nations of the global south. But Indonesia stopped short of accepting yet another invitation to join the expanding group, which is seen as a potential challenge or alternative to Western hegemony in a changing new world order. So what motivated such a high-level trip to Africa And why did Jokowi choose to make such an historic visit at this stage in his presidency? What is the current state of Indonesia-Africa relations? And what might Indonesia's ambitions be for its future in the continent? To answer these questions and many more, my guest today is Christoph Dorinia-Thompson from the University of Indonesia and author of the forthcoming book, Indonesia's Engagement with Africa. Hi, Christoph. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much. Very pleased to have you. Christoph, I wondered if you could just give us a little bit of the background, this history of Indonesia's engagement with the African continent. Some of our listeners might be aware of the Asia-Africa conference that was held in Bandung in 1955. And where does that sit within this history? How significant is that? Okay, first of all, the first country to recognize Indonesian independence was African, right? So it was Egypt. And Egypt played a significant role in Indonesian independence. And until today, it plays a significant role. Notably, a lot of Indonesian students go there and everything. And Egypt is increasingly seeing itself as an African country also. So uh, we can see that Indonesian birth is related to Africa. Then, of course, in Asia... If we look at China, if we look at Indonesia, they consider they usually consider that their relationships with the continent started with what you just mentioned, the Bandung Conference, the Asia-Africa Conference, which took place in April 1955 in Bandung. So maybe people can read the basic stuff about it. So there were 29 countries and everything. But I think if we want to uh, look at it geopolitically, basically it was an Indian Ocean countries organized conference. So you had five what we call the Colombo powers, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Burma, India, and Indonesia. So we can see it actually as an Indian Ocean initiative at the beginning from these countries who were actually, for different reasons, who felt that they were probably not involved enough in in the Asian situation. So you had the Indochina, you had the Geneva Conference, all these issues, you had CETO aim at creating a, a sort of Asian NATO. And I think these Asian countries, especially India at the time, they felt that they wanted to have a bigger say in their region. And so that was a reason for, for Bandung. That was one of the first reasons. 
The second reason, so we could look into all the Asian countries and see their domestic situation. We could look at India and everything. But if we talk about Indonesia, Bandung is related to the question of West Papua, of course. So how could Indonesia gain Papua to join the Indonesian state? Then we could add the fact that Indonesia was suffering from Islamic rebellion in the Bandung region. So you had Darul Islam that was active there. So the Bandung conference was also a way to, uh, you know, regain power in that region. Then you had elections coming up in 19, in, at the end of 1955. So you had India also, who was, India at the beginning wanted more an, an Asian conference huh? because they were more, Nehru and everything was more pan-Asian than, than pan-African-Asian. So they were convinced by, I think, Ali Sastromi Joyo was the prime minister at the time to add Africa to the conference. And, and so in the end, it was a way for India also to support Indonesia. So you have this geopolitical aspect and you have those domestic aspects. And what's interesting is that when you look at what's happening now, actually, it's basically it's the same story, what's happening currently. So it's, uh, you know, all this BRIC stuff and all this uh, Indonesia going to Africa and everything. It's for geopolitical reasons and for domestic reasons. So there's a continuity in terms of history. Yeah, I mean, that's, you're so right. And another thing that really strikes me as being maybe a little one of these continuities is the importance of leadership in who is driving these programs. As we know, at the Bandung Conference, Sukarno was the centre of that conference and became this kind of global star, this great orator, and he led this impassioned new movement, non-aligned movement that came out of that conference. And now we have Jokowi, perhaps not the same leadership style, perhaps not the same oratory abilities. But again, from what I've observed is that Jokowi, this is kind of one of his little pet projects, perhaps you can elaborate on that. So he's he's really leading this, right? So what do you think is motivating Jokowi's Africa policy? And why did he want to go to Africa now at the tail end of his presidency? Well, the first point, I think, is that you had the 50th anniversary Bandung Conference in 2005. So they they made the big event at the time under, under former President Yudo Yono. And then in 2015, there was another, there was a 60-year anniversary. And, you know, uh, Jokowi is known not to really like a big conference without bilateral and business contracts and everything. And so I think it was seen as very ceremonial. And at the same time, Indonesia is aware of what China is doing in Africa. They're aware of what India, Japan, Turkey. So Indonesia knows about that. And so I think Jokowi being a pragmatic former entrepreneur and everything, I think he saw that the format they were using and the approach they were using, which was basically Afro-Asian rhetoric without really going into Africa seriously, I think they considered that, okay, we have to change the approach and be much more serious about it and and just start with economic diplomacy. And the the other point is that I think we will talk, maybe talk about him later, is that the head of the organizing committee for the conference, Jokowi appointed Luhut Panjaitan. So I think Luhut being in charge of organizing the conference, I think he also saw the potential with Africa and he also understood the format had to change. So, so I think that's it. And, and at the same time, in, inside the Indonesian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, inside Kemlu, I think they had, been, they had an idea of making something with Africa, but 
previously they could not do it. The conditions were not there. And I think in terms of capacity to move the whole government, I think they did not have it. And so uh, when Joko Inloho took over the project, I think it could go forward. So I think that's that's the point. And then in terms of, um, of course, what we what we will see is that the approach has changed. It's been very flexible. The way they have approached it has changed. I think they, they've tried things that have not worked. They have tried other things that have worked. And so it's evolving. So basically, the recent visit a few days ago, Jokoi was in Africa. This is the, the new phase of the, the approach. That's a really interesting picture that you paint of Jokowi applying once again this very pragmatic kind of business-minded approach to his leadership. He didn't want to kind of just have the spirit of Bandung as he still refers to, you know, that term, the spirit of Bandung, but wanted to turn it into something that, as you say, is pragmatic and practical and makes a difference. So, Christoph, what is the current state of Indonesia-Africa relations? If this is a new phase, what are we talking about? Are we talking about diplomatic postings in, you know, many, many countries in Africa? What kind of economic exchange is Indonesia having with the continent? Well, I think as always with Indonesia, if you there's two ways to look into it, right? There's the way, okay, uh, it's still small. We don't know if it's serious. We don't know where it's going and everything. Or, or you try and look at it in the long term. And you think it's obvious that Indonesia is going to get closer to Africa because for historically, uh, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of uh, uh, economy, given the size Indonesia's economy is going to be in 10, 20, 30 years. So that's the two ways of seeing it. Yeah? What I'm seeing with my discussion, because I discuss a lot with them and everything, and I've been following for a long time. I think now they're trying to focus on getting a footprint in certain areas first. And if you look at Joko's visit, it was, uh, and that's interesting because it goes back to the fact that Bandung was organized by Indian Ocean countries. So they're focusing on Indian Ocean countries first. So that's why he went to Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, and South Africa. Actually, there was discussions for him to go to uh, DRC, to Congo or Rwanda, actually. That was the discussion. But finally, I think the schedule was not possible to go to DRC. So he met the prime minister in, in, at the BRICS summit bilaterally. So at the beginning, what they wanted to do, they wanted to try and bring the infrastructural success from Indonesia and try and project it to Africa. So using the state-owned companies. They want to internationalize their state-owned companies. So the, the construction ones, uh, I don't know if you know about Wijaya Karya, Wika, Pertamina, all these companies, they want to try and make them global. And so they're trying to catch big infrastructural projects in Africa. So they, they try to make a tower in uh, Gore in Dakar, you know. Uh, so you have the Gore Island, which was the slave island in, in Senegal. So they, have a, they had a big uh, hotel in a marina project there, which was around $250 million, trying to build it there with the government of Senegal. They're trying to do social housing in different places. They did do motorways in uh, in Algeria, for example. They renovated the presidential palace in Niger. So, you know, they're trying to get these, how can I say, demonstration projects to show Indonesian savoir-faire, what they can do and everything. Uh, basically, in a smaller way, what China is doing, you know, with what we call palace diplomacy, so building stadiums, building. So I think they had that kind of idea, but but they faced the problem with that is that they have a financing problem. So especially that COVID, COVID came up and everything. And so it's not easy to finance those projects. And so a lot of them are not moving forward because of that financing problem. And you have in Indonesia this issue of bringing capital out of the country 
which quickly gets considered to be capital flight, you know. So the directors of the state-owned companies, they're scared about that. If they make a project abroad, they'll be accused of taking out money from Indonesia and uh, and uh, and hurting the, the country. And then there will be the corruption issue and everything. Were these kinds of projects, so you're saying they were going to be like demonstration, like showcase? Yes. So were they intended to be profitable or was this Indonesia kind of making an investment, you know, and and that was enough? It was combined, combined. So, you know, of course, they don't want to lose money on it, but but they were probably ready to get smaller returns. Right. So it wasn't at all like some kind of development project. Now, the, the development side is another part. They created, you know, Indonesia Aid, uh, which originally probably more focused on the Pacific Islands, but but they added Africa, and now they're very serious on Indonesia Aid in Africa. So now they're sending vaccines to Nigeria, to Kenya, and the COVID situation brought this whole health diplomacy now. So they're very focused on health diplomacy. And Indonesia has uh, has healthcare companies, uh, state-owned companies, and private companies, which are quite prominent. Uh, those companies they export vaccines, and they're invested in in Nigeria, in Ghana, in uh, now in East Africa. They're entering. So to come back to the the financing issue, they basically they had a Indonesian Exim Bank was supposed to finance uh, some of these projects, but then they faced the COVID situation where funds were uh, more difficult to mobilize, uh, this issue of bringing capital out, as I said, and also they faced the debt of African countries. So, for example, Senegal could not come up with sovereign guarantee. I think the British and the Japanese were ready to, to join, but given the fact that there was no sovereign guarantee, I think everybody pulled out. So, I don't know, maybe this will happen in the future, but for the moment, some of them have been stopped. And, and also there's been legal issues with certain projects that they had started. They are facing some legal issues in certain countries. So, you know, I think they, but it's, I think it's positive because they're learning. And in Africa, I think. Uh, As they go. Yeah. Yeah. Learning by doing. I mean, that's something that you've, you've written about, the kind of knowledge deficit, though, haven't you? And I mean, this is the case from countries and companies from around the world when they get into Africa and encounter difficulties or into any foreign country. But do you see that Indonesia's knowledge of Africa is sufficient or is is actually indeed showing positive signs? Well, I've been through that for many years. You know, I was writing my, at the time writing my dissertation and then uh, now, now I'm finishing my book. I mean, I've been through the difficulty of finding people to talk about that topic, you know. So basically, there's no, we cannot say there's a full-time serious African center or something in Indonesia. You have people who are who are focusing on Africa, but basically it's not full-time. And it's among other zones, you know, so they're studying Europe, studying all these places, but they're not full-time on that. And I think, uh, you know, there's a financing deficit for that topic. So basically, since the topic was not of interest for the government for a long time, well, there's no funding. So, and since African countries are mostly also not financing education at, uh, or, or centers on this side, so, I mean, there's also no financing coming from Africa. So, so you know, it's a problem that is faced. Now, I've also been part of that. We're trying to, we're trying to see what we can do, but, you know, we have to try to mobilize financing and everything. So, I mean, we'll see, but I think now the consciousness is growing, of course. Especially in Indonesia, you, I, I mean, you, you know how it works. When when the president uh, shows that he's interested, of course, uh, things might change very fast. Yeah. I mean, his delegation, as you said, was an interesting one. Did he also take any business people, business leaders with him to Africa on this trip? Well, you have, uh, yes, there were, there were business people with him. They had state-owned companies. So two major state-owned companies with Pertamina 
and uh, PLN, which is the electricity company and, and is headed by close partner of Jokowi, Damon Prasojo, who's been a, a long-time supporter of Jokowi. And if you take the, the example of these two state-owned companies, Pertamina is very, very supportive of the visit. Of course, they have interests in Africa. They have their, their only refinery there in Algeria. They have investments now in uh, several African countries because they bought a French company, Morale uh, Prom, that that gave them a lot of uh, several assets in Africa. They're they're investing more and more there in gas, in oil, now in geothermal. So they have a new deal in geothermal in Kenya. So they're serious. And, and Pertamina is, a, I would say, it's an exception compared to the other state-owned companies I was talking about who have financing issues to, to Africa. Pertamina is, is an exception because Pertamina has the justification of bringing back oil for Indonesia and energy security. And so it has this uh, legitimacy to invest abroad because of that, which allows it to invest billions of dollars. So they, they announced 2.5 billion in uh, in uh, Kenya, which is very significant for a country like Kenya. I mean, Luhut is even saying 3 billion. So I don't know. I don't know what the exact figure is. But And, and then you have the private companies. So you have major Indonesian companies, uh, major Indonesian conglomerates who are, who are very invested in Africa. You have the Salim Group through Indofood and their Instant Noodle Indomie, which is a world leader and a leader in Africa. Uh, you have the Sinarmas Group, which is doing palm oil, uh, paper products and everything. The Wings Group is the same. And these companies, for example, they're talking about, you know, since they have problems with Europe, they're saying that they're going to diversify to Africa and that Africa is going to replace Europe in terms of market. Uh, of course, this also will be in the long term because uh, the, the, the quantities are not the same. Yeah? But, but No, 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 market's not quite the same. Not, not quite the same. <laughs> but, 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 the discourse, but the discourse is there. And I think we cannot ignore this type of discourse. It, it shows, uh, you know, a will. It shows a, a path. And like everything in Indonesia, I think it's not necessarily instant, but when the but when the process is started, it's very important to look into it because once they've decided something, generally uh, maybe there will be obstacles, maybe it will take a long time, but usually they move towards that direction. So oh, that's intriguing to know about the extent of it. And as you're saying, there's the national security question for the energy, which is really interesting. So, you know, you're describing forward momentum here. Is Jokowi's interest in Africa reflected across his government and in Indonesian politics more broadly, or do they think it's kind of a folly? What you've described is something more serious, though, I think. So the, what I described, and that's going to be in my book, yeah, so I'm, my book is coming out uh, this year on this topic. What I describe is that there's the, you know, that Asia-Africa topic. So the Asia-Africa topic is is ideological because as you mentioned before it relates to Sukarno and everything so you have also people like Megawati for example the former president who are very focused on that topic and then also it relates to money because you have Chinese African networks and these Chinese African networks reverberate inside Indonesia so you have some Indonesian businessmen let's say businessmen politicians who got investments relating to for example, Chinese Angolan oil money. And so what happened is that also Jokowi Luhut, because for me, they're a political couple, uh, these political couples consolidated its, its, its power, notably by taking over the African topic. So ideologically, to consolidate in relation to Megawati, and that you can see it, for example, when Indonesia launched the Indonesia-Africa Forum, 
Megawati was supportive, but then she requested the organization of a second bandung, which never happened, which was supposed to happen after the first bandung. But then there were a lot of problems. You had the competition between the non-aligned movement and the bandung in the Asia-African topic. Sukarno at the beginning was more on the Afro-Asian topic compared to the non-aligned movement. And then in 1965, he fell. Ben Bella fell in Algeria, which was supposed to organize the second conference. And so, you know, you have all these Afro-Asian movement that completely collapsed. And so the second Bandung never happened. So Megawati, after meeting with President Zuma at the time, President Zuma, who came to her home in, in Menteng in Jakarta, she called for a second Bandung. So you can see when she calls for a second Bandung, you, which is Afro-Asia and everything, you can see that it's complementary, but it's different from the Indonesia-Africa Forum. That's the first point. And the second point in terms of business. So when Jokowi was elected, the, the vice president of Angola came to Jakarta and there was a deal for oil supply that was supposed to go through, which was supported by Surya Palo, which is the head of Nasdem. Then there were problems and everything. And so this meant there were a lot of potential business and potential deals between African countries and Indonesia. And so, of course, this also had to go into the government, had to be controlled by the presidency. And so that also explains why the Africa topic had to come back to Jokowi and Luhut. So there were political consolidation issues for this topic to be under Jokowi. Jokowi who nominated, who nominated Luhut to head the African task force. So Luhut was actually officially nominated to handle this topic. Like all the important topics Jokowi has to handle, uh, you know that if Luhut is appointed, it means it's important. Indeed. Yeah. And, and, and this is also an interesting point because, you know, we had all this discourse about Jokowi not being interested in international affairs, uh, not being interested in foreign policy and everything. I think it's a mistake. What he did is that he, it's Luhut who's handing it. And so in, the, in Jokowi's conception of power, which is a Javanese conception of power, why would he handle day-to-day -day business and day-to-day -day issues when he's the king? He doesn't need to. He has Luhut who handles it. And once it's done, well, Jokowi comes and brings his symbolic power to, to confirm it and once it's been delivered. And that's what he's done in Africa, for example. Luhut has done the job. And so Jokowi goes to Africa and confirms what has been done. In Africa, he attended cultural ceremonies. Uh, so everything that's symbolic and ceremonial and that places him on the ideological level, that's what he does once the job has been done. So I think that's how I, I, I see it. Mm -mm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in this partnership you paint of Luhut and Jokowi, because as observers, we've seen them in lockstep, Jokowi delegating these key roles, you know, like, find me the money to build my new capital, um, amongst other things, you know, get me a meeting with Elon Musk, those kinds of very important items of business. And from what I'm hearing, Luhut delivers. I think, of course, we will discuss to what extent he delivers on every topic he handles, right? I think the main reason is that Jokowi feels safe when Luhut is handling it, politically safe. That's the first reason. Then there is the question of seniority. I mean, Luhut is a senior leader in Indonesia. I mean, seniority cannot be underestimated in Indonesia. Of course, we have all this uh, youth culture and the digital, and we say the, net, the netizens have all this power and everything. It's true to a certain extent, but I think seniority, and especially if it's a senior, former military general and everything, I think the credibility, the experience, the power he brings is tremendous. And so basically, you know, he has the experience and then he has a network. And so 
Yeah, for me, it's because Djokovic feels safe with him. In the biography of Luhut, you have uh, General Agus Wijoyo, who says that, yeah, you know, Djokovic is the president. He has someone who can execute and who is not dangerous politically for him. Because uh, Luhut is not Javanese, Luhut is not Muslim. And so, you know, he's not politically dangerous for him. So, and then they know each other for a long time. They've been business partners before. So I think, I think the main reason is that. So to reply to your question, does he deliver on everything? I think he's delivered on certain things. So I think the COVID situation has been handled quite well. I was there during the COVID. I mean, we were worried at the beginning. And then when he came in, he took over the subject. Then it was like business as usual, you know. So then, as I said, for example, with the example of the African policy, he was in charge of the infrastructural deals. I think it didn't work. So, you know, it could be seen as negative, but then he changed. Now he's transformed the African initiative in the African topic. He's transformed it as a way to protect and defend the industrial downstreaming policy in Indonesia. So he's mobilizing what we call the global south and through Afro-Asian rhetoric to defend that domestic policy. So basically now the African policy is also a way to mobilize African countries, resource-rich African countries who also have this industrialization dream, you know, Zambia, DRC, uh, Zimbabwe, all these countries, they want to industrialize through their commodities. And so what Luhut has done is that he's mobilizing on this. This creates a sort of minilateral coalition to defend the downstreaming policy. So basically mm. what's happening now in Africa is, relates to that also. You use the term a laboratory for the industrialization yes. issue that yes. you've just yes. described. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And use Africa as that as that laboratory. So I really want to get to your sense of what's behind this whole thing. And well, you've written quite explicitly and called it Indonesian expansion at some level, right? And you know, possibly a ambition towards greater power status. Can you talk a bit about that? Well I mean uh, that sounds really, really big. Well, the first point is that, well, really big, but if we read the studies of PricewaterhouseCoopers and everything, Indonesia is going to be the fourth economic power in the world in 20 years. So, I mean, 20 years is nothing. And even some are saying in 15 years. I mean, we have to realize that, yes, Indonesia is, is an important power, that it's going to be in the top five very soon. And so, of course, it's going to be considered as among the great powers and such a great power that it can refuse to, you know, it can delay its BRICS request to join without any problems. And it's probably joining OECD, which will make it probably the country with the per capita income that is the weakest inside OECD, I think, maybe. But why are they accepting it in OECD? Because of course, they know the importance of the country. So what what you're saying, if there's an inevitability that by 2040 or whatever it is, Indonesia will achieve this, but but is it? There's so many challenges, Christoph, in front of Indonesia, as you you know, you mentioned a few of them already encountered in this expansion project, these these uh, showcase projects, maybe you know, around getting the financing right, international investment, and all of that kind of thing. I mean, can Indonesia do that in 20 years? Can it ramp up its knowledge of other parts of the world and engagement at that level? Can it be a new China in 20 years is essentially the question. Well, I'd always be four or five times smaller than China. So, but It, it uh, is emulating China. You, you kind of alluded to that already. Well, it's no secret that Luhut is close to China. I mean, he's in 
He's in charge of a relationship with the beer for the Belt and Road. He's, he's the special envoy of the president for China and everything. So, of course, in his approach, he follows what China does and he looks at what China does. And when he showcases Indonesian industrialization based on nickel, well, that's supported by Chinese investment. So in a way, when he goes to Africa and, and promotes that industrialization model, basically it's a Chinese model. But of course, Indonesia is not only limited to that, right? So you have other approaches uh, which are complementary to that one. I mean, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has its own approach. Uh, you know, they're supporting their own ways of doing things. But I mean, it's part of it. And so, of course, Indonesia has a lot of challenges. I'm also critical of, uh, you know, the way universities work in Indonesia. And, and I'm coming from there, so I, I, I know exactly how it works. But at the same time, in Indonesia, you have a lot of very smart young people. You have a lot of very smart, honest young people. Of course, you have all this corruption and everything, but you have also a lot of very smart, honest young people. And for me, that means that probably there's hope that the country can move forward in that direction. And uh, the other thing I think is that because Indonesia is lucky to be located close to China, close to Japan, close to Korea, close to Australia, I think because all these countries are moving forward in the right way, they're growing, the center of power is moving or has maybe moved already in that direction and that all these countries have an, have an interest for Indonesia to be stable and not become a mess. When I look at those aspects, I think the country is going to move positively because of that. And, you know, I wonder, just to kind of, we running out of time, we could talk forever, but I loved your little bit of hopeful messaging at the end about Indonesia's young people. So, you know, I always like to end with that, but I do want to ask the question about, you know, where you see Indonesia's foreign policy direction, you know, in relation to what you alluded to about rejecting the BRICS membership offer. But as it gets so big and powerful, you know, will Indonesia stay true to its free and active foreign policy? Can Indonesia maintain this non-aligned position that it's had for so long? How does this all pan out for you looking to the future? Well, basically what I think is that officially it's not a rejection of the BRICS. Yeah, it's a delay. It's a two-year delay. Yeah, they don't want to rush it. They don't want to rush it, yeah. What I think is that if we look at Indonesian history, leaders who have appeared to focus too much on one area, who have been seen as too close to one block or one zone, well, they have uh, had domestic problems. They have had domestic problems. So my thinking is that Jokowi, at the end of his mandate, could not afford to take that risk. I think he would have faced too strong of a contestation if he had done that. Then what I think is that, you know, a, a country like Indonesia may be, as I said, it aims at being a great power. So if you want to be a great power, maybe it's better to join a group of quote-unquote successful countries or the most successful countries. So you join the OECD because the OECD is considered to be the most developed, the most successful countries. And I think there is this aspiration in Indonesia to be considered as a successful country. For me, the Indonesia going to Africa and all this kind of thing is, is a way, of course, to gain uh, leeway, to gain geopolitical strength and to gain new allies. Because as I said, they have to, they consider that their domestic policies need to be supported, need to be consolidated, need to be protected. And so they need allies for that. For me at the moment, that's the most important point. And so it's all part of Jokowi's legacy. 
also an important point. Why did he go at the end of his mandate? I'm not going to say why, but it will be in my book. But, but there's a cultural reason why it's happening at the end of the mandate and why he did not go before. There's a Javanese or there's a cultural issue with Africa, which explains a lot why he waited until the end of his mandate to go there. Mm, okay, we'll have to read the book. Yes. If we had a lot more time, I'd love to hear your impressions of how the Africans take to Indonesians and vice versa. But for another time, maybe once you've released the book, I guess very final question is, is all of this going to live on past his presidency? It's a legacy, but it's got to have momentum. It's got to be taken forward into the next government. So if you followed the visit, you, you, you saw he's, uh, they're announcing a grand design for African development for five years, for the next five years. Well, personally, I would not have used the term grand design. I think it, it's too grandiloquent. You know, it's too big. It's, uh, it doesn't send the right message. I think it's too much. But, but I mean, you can see when with the use of the term grand design, you can see that he's talking domestically which is always the case. He's talking domestically. I mean, so basically they're focusing on agriculture, on health, health resilience. And, and through Indonesia Aid, they're going to finance a project. And I think they're adding commercial and state-owned enterprise investments. Because I mean, Indonesia Aid, the budget is, is still not very high. I mean, it's a few hundred million maybe in a, per year. They can maybe spend a few million, a few tens of million maximum. They're not uh, providing like India is providing or China letters of credit of billions of dollars, you know, so. The term is probably exaggerated, but still it shows that creating a five-year plan, it shows that he wants to make sure that it's going to go through after he's elected. And then, I mean, the candidates he's supporting, both of them will support that policy. So Ganjar or Prabhu is elected, they will support that. I mean, Prabhu is selling weapons to Africa and he's receiving a lot of African leaders also and African generals. And Ganjar is PDIP leader, so... Asia Africa for him is very important. Then if it's Anis, I don't know. But since he's supported by Surya Palo and Surya Palo has an interest in Africa, maybe he would also support the policy. So Let's just wait and see on it. Thank you so much, Christophe, because for a lot of us, you know, Africa and Indonesia haven't really been in our contemporary reference, very much in the historical. So thank you so much for this really interesting update and all the best for the book. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. That was Christoph Dorinja-Thompson from the University of Indonesia. His forthcoming book, Indonesia's Engagement with Africa, will be published later this year by Paul Grave Macmillan. Talking Indonesia will return on the 14th of September, hosted by Liz Kramer. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.